Hi, this is Russ Ballard, and you're listening to the Voices of Russ Ballard podcast. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Voices of Russ Ballard with myself, Ian. And me, Sven. Good morning, folks. Good morning. Sven looking very wintry in very cold Deutschland, I would imagine. You're looking as though you've got your your ski wear there, or just uh, sorry, your winter wear, nicely. Uh, <laughs> nice. You're modelling very, very nicely uh, the winter gear today. Well, yeah, uh, we we could just add a beat now. It's 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 fucking freezing cold here. It's just four degrees, but Ian, but there's something to warm us up. And well, of course, it is our today's special guest. But I heard rumors that there are brilliant news around the voices of Russ Ballard podcast. What's the news, Ian? We have some great news. Well, you know, sparing your blushes, Sven, thanks to you finding uh, our friends at Spotify, or rather specifically the anchor company at Spotify. Um, it's enabled us to, for this this being the 10th podcast, it's enabled us to go multi-platform. And Can what you say this again? It is, it is number 10. 10. 10 indeed. And, and, and I'm really excited. The fact that, you know, we always, we always wanted to, 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 to let people know about Russ's website and, and obviously drive them to, to perhaps go and have a look on the website and all the great things that you put on there. But, but now, you know, we have a chance of reaching out to the people that perhaps did don't know Russ quite so well, and they'll be very welcome as well. And if they're listening to this, you're very welcome. Um, we have a Facebook group called The Voices of Russ Ballard, where lots of like-minded people discuss all sorts of nerdy stuff, as well as general <laughs> stuff about, about Russ and, and his career. Um, so yeah. I think the first piece of good news is that we're going multi-platform, and, and I'm going to ask Sven in a moment to, to list all those in case you want to subscribe to one of those platforms, or maybe you want to... Um, to listen in in a different format and you'd be very welcome to do so. But the, while he's doing that, before we do that, well, the other piece of good news is that, and again, linked to, to what Sven found in the Spotify world, is that we can play music and we can't just play two or three albums like we've been able to before. We can now play music. We can play anything in the Spotify library. And it means that the, that when we talk to our special guest today very soon that we can that we can play songs from from throughout the link songs throughout his career or her career if we have some lady guests on soon so it really does widen the opportunity for us to make it more entertaining for for you the listeners um and we're very very excited about it so Sven tell us how how could somebody listen apart from the website link how could somebody listen on the Voices of Russ Ballard podcast? Tell me. Well, you can, as usual, go to russballardmusic.com uh, to listen to the podcasts and, which is really handy, I think, to, to all of us, you can use your mobile phone or your 
Google Homes or Alexas in the world. Um, you can find us now on Anchor, which is by Spotify. You can listen on Spotify. You can listen on Apple Podcasts. We are on Google Podcasts, on Radio Public, on Pocket Casts, and on Breaker, which is brill news. But so, Ian, without any further ado, let's jump into podcast number 10 again again I, I can't say it often enough i mean anniversary we're into Ten. double figures we're into double figures Sven. double figures. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant so ian who is yeah. our today's special guest well i think without any further ado we we have to introduce him because he's 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 champing at the bit and we want to hear him and uh so you know good morning everybody we hope it's a sunny afternoon with you wherever you are it's been a long time waiting for this man to come on the show in fact it's been all day and all of the night and some might say it's a tragedy but listen we're not going to bang on about it anymore because what do you want if you don't want mr bob henrit ladies and gentlemen Oh, that's very good. I am, I'm, I'm stunned. Very good. I should have written it down, really. But that's 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 very kind of you to say all of those things. You did say something nice there, didn't you? Lots of nice things. Yeah, by association, Bob. Association. Those wonderful songs. Yeah. Well, only only nice things. Absolutely. Funnily enough, I was writing about some of those songs because we did. um, We went to Wormwood Scrubs to entertain the. inmates and you, they were as you the, do as as we did yeah so we went and we did a gig and there were all these vassal was in the audience as in vassal was spy and various other people and we we entertained them with songs like what do you want if you don't want money and uh, poor me and all those adam fate songs and uh, nobody <laughs> saw the irony i certainly didn't see the irony but uh, <laughs> I think Vassal probably did. And there was a guy who murdered his wife in, uh, in, in Germany. He was a soldier. And he murdered his wife and made it look like suicide. And he was in the audience. How, how strange. Anyway, but I digress. Oh, oh. Well, that's a, a very quick one for me on that. I, I actually, um, as, as an ex-banker, we, we went and played in the high security, played football, the high security um, prison in the Isle of Wight in Parkhurst. Yeah, and it was quite an interesting experience, one one for another day. But things like when the ball went off at the side and when I collected the ball, somebody would pull a balaclava down, because they all had balaclavas and donkey jackets, and pull the balaclava down and say, do you recognise me at your bank? And things like that. And various other things. Our goalkeeper was very well employed, and someone said to him, uh, tell you what, mate, you're having a great game. If you ever if you ever do bird, you'll be in the first team, which was you know quite reassuring, really, for the, for the guy. For the goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're going to start at the beginning. Um, Sven, do you want to kick off our, our questions for the wonderful Bob Henry here on The Voices of Russ Ballard? Oh, yeah. Yes, please. I do have a great idea. I think all of you will like it. I'm going to ask... I'm going to ask similar questions we asked um, Mott and Thorpe and Russell, and then we we see with Bob's answers who told us uh, the truth. That is always very funny. 
So <laughs> what 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 about the, the the early days? Let's start with the early days to give this podcast kind of a structure, I hope so. Bob, please tell us a little bit about your birthplace and growing up in uh, Hertfordshire. Yeah, we, uh, Russell and I are pretty much interchangeable with this. We grew up in the, we weren't, weren't exactly neighbours, but we grew up in the same little town in Hertfordshire, which was just, um, just out of the smoke. London was called the smoke in those days, and we were just out of the smoke. So we grew up out of the mess. And we went to our, our own school, our different schools. I went to a Catholic college, which have, with everything that that entails, uh, anybody who's listening who knows anything about Catholic colleges will know exactly how painful it is. <laughs> and uh, so I went to one, Clem Cattini went to one, to the same one. So uh, it wasn't a music school by any manner of means, but it just happened to throw up a few, a few, um, fate, well, ultimately famous musicians and, uh, Anyway, so this was the, the very borders of London, and we could get into London if we wanted to very quickly, except that we weren't really allowed to go. It was, you know, Sin City, you know, and at, at 13 or 14 years old, when we first got into, into music, we wanted to, we wanted to go and see instruments. We didn't actually, it didn't matter what they were. So we would get on the trolley bus, Russell and I, and, and Bernie Benson, and we would go to Edmonton and we would look in a music shop called Berry's. And we go there because it had a microphone in the window and a single dodgy snare drum on a stand. And that was the, the extent of its musical instruments, but it didn't stop us going there. So this was part of our Saturdays. And eventually we, we um, either we got old enough to go to the West End of London to see proper instruments or we just went, you know, sort of disobeying our parents, which of course my kids would never have got, got in, never been allowed to, to have done. So <laughs> it was it was the leafy suburbs, we called it. Mm -hmm. And my next door neighbor was one Cliff Richard, except he wasn't Cliff Richard, he was Harry Webb. Got myself a crying, talking, sleeping, walking, living dog. To do my best to please her Just cause she's a living doll Got a roving eye And that is why she satisfies my soul Got the one and only walking, talking, living doll We'll take a look at her head. And Harry came from, uh, from India When partition began and lived next door to us with his um, his uncles and aunts, and we so we knocked about together, and he so that there were the whole family lived next door to us, including the original family that were there, and we would go to Saturday morning pictures together to see Tom Mix and uh, oh. Bob Cassidy and all those cowboys, and we'd we'd see um, very uh, uh, average uh, films about space, and. So that was how it all began. And we joined something called Chessant Boys Club. Now, Sir Cliff, as he became, went to school with my sister and they were in the same class. And we, we would 
go to Chesham Boys Club, of which he, he ultimately became, I think he became the president, but we'd go there to rehearse and play five-a-side football, uh, all of that sort of thing. And it was a proper boys club at a time when that was okay. Nowadays, of course, it would be looked at rather strangely or uh, as indeed a youth would be. But then that was what we did. So there were probably half a dozen bands that were involved with this boy, Chesson Boys Club. And I think we played one and we played one and sixpence a year to be members, which meant we could we could rehearse in perpetuity for one and six a year, which was pretty it's a good bargain. So we all became part of the boys club, and uh, eventually there was a it was decided that there would be a charity gig, and uh, Cliff by this time was Cliff and the Drift, Cliff and the Drifters. And he was going to top the bill at a, a, a theatre in Edmonton. And we were going to be on it. Now, by this time, Russell and I and Russell's brother and Bernie Benson were in a band. We were called the Daybreakers. Were we the Daybreakers? Yeah, we probably were the Daybreakers by then. With a guy yeah. called Buster Meekle. And Buster was ultimately in Unit 4 Plus 2, but we'll save him for later. So we would, we were doing this gig and we're in the dressing room, which turns out to be uh, a classroom. And Hank, Hank's guitar, his uh, fabulous guitar, which turned out later on not to be so fabulous at all. They were known as Martian cricket bats in the 50s. And they had, a, <laughs> they really were planks of wood. And he had an Antoria plank, which um, was nothing like a Fender, was nothing like a Futurama. But anyway, so one of my pals was with us and he strummed Hank's guitar, which was in a, a cardboard case on, the, on one of the desks. And Hank said, uh, leave it alone, son, cost a lot of money. And uh, <laughs> this was the guy who, interestingly enough, made Russell's holy guitar. So this was Jim Wilkinson. So not only did he make Russell's holy guitar and cut the bouts, which are the anybody who has no idea what I'm talking about, who is me, but anyway, it's a... The, the sort of um, the cutouts, the bits where your hands go when you're rushing up, up and down the, the frets, he made them equal and nobody had done that before. And, and then he also did, believe it or don't, when Argent's album, the first album came out, he invented this rather runic script which said Argent. And so, so Jim invented that and he, oh, he, 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 was, he was a very clever guy and uh, Every now and again, we'd say something stupid to him and he'd, he'd get on with it, which was rather weird. So that so was generally, so we grew up. We that was the neon, so, sorry, Bob. Was, so just yeah. to clarify that, I think then that was what we call the, 
the neon sign that was on the first Al- um, Argent album, that sort of logo. Is that what yeah, you're yeah. referring to there? Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. I always thought of it as looking like um, space uh, sort of letters, sort of thing yeah. you'd expect to see on a spaceship. Mm. Uh, anyway, so Jim invented that. And we anyway, by this time, we're getting pretty good. Uh, and we're playing with lots of people. And... How it worked in those days, we're talking about just getting into the 60s and how it worked in those days is that we would get a gig and uh, as the Daybreakers and we so we do our act. And then one of um, Larry Parnes's uh, stable would come on and sing his hit record and we would back them. Or it could be Helen Shapiro, it could have been anybody from the time. So we got to back a lot of people and we got to learn a lot of songs. So... We are, by this time, we're getting very well known and we're, we're sort of, it's a bit interchangeable. We're playing with, uh, sometimes we're playing with Mike Berry, Russell and I, sometimes uh, with, with, um, with Chaz Hodges, and sometimes we're playing with anybody else who needed our services. And uh, one of the bands that we played in, even though we weren't in it, was, was called the Blue Jacks. And a guy who ultimately became our, our road manager for just about every band I was in, including Argent, um, he, he had better gigs than, than we had, or he had more gigs. And every now and again, if we didn't have a gig, he would, he, would, uh, he would call us and say, do you want to do a gig in an American base uh, on Friday? So we'd go, we'd turn up at 15 years old, me and Nobby Dalton, who ultimately was in the Kinks playing bass, mm. we turned up at... Um, at a, a, some sort of RAF or a USAF camp. And one of them we, we were playing at had um, the guys from the crickets in the audience who had been uh, seconded to being in, in the army or the, uh, the air forces it was there for them. So we, we did a lot of this and eventually my brother-in-law was playing with a band called the Hunters and the Hunters were an instrumental band who were exceedingly good. In those days, everything seemed to be modeled on, on the shadows, except that at the beginning, they weren't the shadows. Of course, they were the drifters. And so in the beginning, they, they were doing rather well. And, uh, and so were the Hunters. And the Hunters called me when I was, I was still at school. And they said, do you want to come and play on a, a record with us? And so I found my way to uh, Fontana Records in Marble Arch. I don't know how I did it because I couldn't possibly have driven. I was, I think I was 15. So anyway, we, I found my way to Fontana Records. And as I was going in with my bass drum under my arm, the, uh, the guy who was producing us, a chap called Jack Bavistock said, oh, you won't be needing that, son. And I said, won't be needing what? And he said, that, that bass drum, we don't record bass drums here. We don't need it. As a matter of fact, we don't successfully record them at all. So I said, but it's part of what I play. It's called Rocker Shake. And he said, what is Rocker Shake? And I, I showed him what Rocker Shake was. Boom, chap, boom, boom, chap, boom, boom, chap, chap, boom, 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 that sort of thing. And he said, oh, I said, and if we don't have that, this, this song's not going to be the same. So I was the first person to be able to play or to be allowed to play a bass drum at Fontana Records. So that's a, that's a brill, brill story, but, but was it always clear for you that you wanted to be a drummer instead of being oh, well, yes, a, I've, I've sort of, a bass player? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, what happened is that um, 
I went round to Bernie Benson, who is uh, very much part of me and Russell's growing up. Bernie played bass with us, and um, he had something behind his back. And he said, oh, we're having a skiffle group. And he, he produced what was behind his back, which was a washboard. And he said, and you're the washboard player. And it was his mother's washboard, which Maud has got somewhere, I'm, I'm told. So I began as a washboard player. And the only logical conclusion or the logical direction from playing a very loud uh, washboard was to become a drummer. So I did. And I borrowed a drum kit from somebody who was, I was in the scouts and somebody, I think one of the other patrol leaders had a drum kit and he loaned it to me, but unfortunately he wanted it back. And it turned out years later that I discovered it was hugely valuable, this particular drum kit. And I, unfortunately I didn't have it anymore and I don't suppose he did either. So that was the very beginning, that, that was skiffle. Yeah. So we play locally in youth clubs and, and, and the boys club uh, for probably something like five shillings, which was, uh, here's the jokes, which was all we could afford at the time. So, <laughs> so anybody hasn't got that, I'm sorry. I could say it again, but uh, anyway, so we, we, uh, we, would play, <laughs> we would play everywhere we could for five shillings, which was all we could afford at the time. So we, <laughs> so we got on with the quest for stardom and uh, we would rehearse diligently. I'd forgotten about this. We would rehearse diligently. I think it was every Wednesday at, at uh, the boys club. And then we would uh, play five-a-side football and then we would walk home. And this went on and uh, it, I, it, was, it was a wonderful time for us because there was so much music going on. And interestingly, the music we were listening to wasn't rock and roll. Well, it was, we, if we were lucky, we could listen to rock and roll on Radio Luxembourg. But as far as the BBC were concerned, they didn't have, they didn't have what we wanted to listen to. They didn't have rock and roll. They had novelty music and they, they'd have Billy Cotton Band Show. I don't know if you remember this, um, Streety, but um, certainly yeah. Billy Cotton Band Show. Mm -hmm. That was the extent of music in those days. And, we, and they would have novelty songs, as I said, like I discovered a boom, boom, boom right before me eyes. And, and, and they, they, it was just a, a variety show, which was just as well in the end, because it, by the time I joined Adam Faith, who was very much into variety, um, I knew all about the, the media, the medium rather of, of variety. And we, um, we began, me and Russell uh, and Thorpe and Maud began to be knee deep in it. And, uh, and we, it was very much part of our lives. Well, so, Bob, Bob, we were just going to, we were going to go on to the, the, it seems like we've almost at the Adam Faith juncture. Ah, yeah, we are, but, yeah. be, but before we do that, I just, just, just to backtrack, because I think some people, listening to this might when you mentioned that you live next door to harry i.e cliff mm. might want me to say you know you were the two of you were bachelor boys back in the day then um but um i just wonder do you sorry the joke still comes. he might not uh, but but you um did you have you kept in touch with him over the years as you both be, I, I say became famous it sounds a bit glib to say that but you, but you both gained um you know sort of uh notoriety in the music industry did you did you keep in touch with him uh, as time went um, on as, as schoolboy chums as it were mm, well i mean he he went off to be a, a superstar 
and I went off to be, you know, I mean, it, I was really pleased with the direction I was in, but Cliff was up there. I mean, every time he switched on the TV on a Saturday, Cliff was on the on the TV. So mm. we we didn't keep up as such, although there was one one uh, once that I was supposed to play with him. What happened is they were play the, the Cliff and the Shadows were playing at the hmm, the Finsbury Park Astoria, and they uh, and Tony Meehan had. I think maybe he had his tonsils out or something, so he couldn't play. And uh, they were thinking about using me. I was still a kid, and they were thinking about using me, and this was the sort of thing that my mother and, uh, and Cliff's mother were talking about over the garden fence. And, they, and it, it transpired that they hadn't used me for this week in variety because they thought I was at school and too young. So I never did get to play with Sir Cliff. But hey, um, I can wait. Yeah. So, so you don't talk anymore, you could say. It's so funny how we don't talk anymore. It's so funny while we don't talk anymore. No, no, no that's enough of this. I think, I think we, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't know. It just, it just came to me in a flash. So yeah, sorry, yeah, Bob. Yeah. So we, we were moving on to Adam Faith. So I think that we, we really want to hear about the, the Adam Faith and the roulette side. And I think yeah. in line with Sven's initial question that we asked Russell and the boys, um, I'm just going to sort of factor these in, or perhaps you can factor these into your, your answer, which was general questions about Adam, such as what was he like? You know, what was your favorite Adam Faith song? What was your least favorite? And Lastly, also, did Adam ever tell you off for any reason or have any disagreements? It, that that might come out in in your um in your next uh, uh, response, but we'd yeah, love to we'd book, love to hear. As it happens, it is in the book. Um, uh, through my time with uh, Adam, uh, tell to us he was never Adam to us. He was always tell. I think uh, I'm gonna. Always... I'm just gonna say one thing there for our listeners. Um, Bob just said it's in the book. Uh, the book oh, right, that Bob yeah. is referring to is called Banging On. It's available in all good bookshops. Um, so go on to Amazon, get on to wherever you can and buy it because it's a great read. And, um, and meanwhile, after the advert, back to Bob Hendrick. <laughs> so silly ass. Yeah, um, it was... <laughs> I wanted stardom uh, and... Uh, I was working really hard. Uh, I would get up at five o'clock in the morning to, to, um, to do my paper round. And then having done my paper round, I would get, a, get the trolley bus to school. And because I'd been rehearsing the night before, not only would I have uh, uh, newsprint all over my fingers, um, I would have unfinished English homework, which I always used to write on the bus. So I'd be sitting on the trolley bus writing my English homework. Which, um, which didn't fool anybody, especially not the Jesuits. They're not, they won't get fooled again, if you'll pardon the pun. Uh, and it was, a, it was a baptism of fire. And uh, there was a certain cachet about the most, being the most punished person at St. Ignatius, which was the school. And Clem claims it was him, but I think it was me. And, uh, and it was the sort of things like doing my homework on the bus. And, uh, but I... I 
I wanted to, I wanted to be in music. I didn't, I hadn't thought of anything else. Oh, actually, it's not quite true. I was, there were two options and they were absolutely diametrically opposed. One of them was to be a musician and the other was to join the army on a short service commission. Now, at our school, we had uh, something called CCF, <clears throat> which was the Combined Cadet Force. So it, we were all young, young soldiers. Stand up and fight! You're in the army now. Oh, oh you're in the army now. And uh, I thought, I quite like this. And we'd go camping uh, in the... In, 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 in the army camps and, in, and enjoy ourselves and do all the exciting things. And I thought I could do this. Of course, it never entered my mind that by being a soldier, I could get killed. And, and people did. So anyway, in the end, I decided against that and took the safe, what I considered to be the safer route, which was uh, becoming a musician. So Adam was sort of in a way responsible for that. And it's a convoluted way, but John Rogers, who was my brother-in-law-to-be, who was in the, uh, he was in the roulettes before me, he was in the roulettes with Thorpey, so he was before Russell and he before Mod, and he rode me in to the roulettes, and the next thing I know, I have left the sixth form, I'm not going to university anymore, I'm not doing any of those things, I'm a drummer. So I got into the van, their van, for the first time in my life, and we drove to Bristol and we had a week in variety at Bristol, at Bristol Hippodrome probably. And we arrived and uh, I set up my drums and awaiting the great man who walked on the, uh, onto the stage and walked towards me and shook my hands. And the next thing I know, we're topping and tailing uh, Adam Faith songs. So we're doing What Do You Want, obviously. We're doing Poor Me. We're doing When Johnny Comes Marching Home, which we always ended with. We're doing the Skipple medley. We're doing the rock and roll medley. And these were, this was his act. This was his show. And this was what everybody would go to see him for. So this was the beginning of uh, my career. And uh, I, everybody who joined, including Russell, including Thorpey, including, well, no, not Thorpey was already, including Mod was on two weeks probation. And after every, every, every night you played, the others would go into the dressing room with, with Adam and talk about you. And it was, it was quite nerve wracking, you know, am I, gonna, am I gonna make it through the cut today? So we, uh, I, uh, I did make it and eventually I am a roulette and I, I had, Fortunately, the, the suit fitted me because you had suits in those days and ties and, you know, this was mm -hmm. probably, even the Beatles had suits, obviously we know had suits and ties. Mm -hmm. And the only people who didn't or who didn't do it prop like we did were the Rolling Stones. But everybody else had a, a suit made from a shiny material called tonic, which looked really good under lights and which is why we, we wore it. So... The next thing I know, the first 10 weeks of my professional career are doing weeks in variety. Now, uh, around the country, the first one was Bristol. We went up to, um, uh, we went to Liverpool where the, uh, the Beatles were in the audience, believe it or not. 
And uh, so this was my probably my fifth or sixth week in uh, in showbiz, and we really were in showbiz. This was entertainment. It wasn't, it, of course, it was rock and roll because that's what we were playing. But on the on the bill, the variety bill, there would be um, people on trick. There'd be trick cyclists, you know, guys on one wheeled cycles. And uh, uh, there was one particular act where this guy blew darts at his wife who was a few feet away in front of a dartboard. So he blew them from his mouth and, and, uh, and missed, had to miss her. It's a bit like the knife throwing act. And uh, so that was one of them. And we had this chap called Don, hmm, Don, Don Errol. Anyway, this guy was a trumpet player. And we, part of our job was to heckle him. So we'd be secreted in the audience, me, Maud, Russell, Thorpey, and every now and again, we had to shout out something to which he would respond. And um, eventually he, he would, um, and he was a wonderful trumpet player. But in those days, uh, you wouldn't make so much money being a wonderful trumpet player in, a, in, say, in Joe Loss's band. But if you were an act on your own, you would. So we would be part of this show. And when, once we started going to, uh, doing pantomimes and, uh, and summer seasons, we were even more part of it. You know, we we had we had a we had things to do, whether we liked it or not, and, uh, and we did like we we didn't know any better. We thought, oh, everybody does this, and we used to play tricks on one another. You can imagine what Mod was like, being in one place for thirteen weeks doing the same stuff. You know, so anyway, we uh, you asked me about uh, about Adams and the songs. My favorite song, I don't believe we ever played. Uh, together and that was made you. Well, I saw you sitting there so cool Like you just come out from school Looking such a pretty sight Like a stick of dynamite Sitting on a coffee bar stool Well, I guess that's a fact And I never can relax until I've made Well, I feel such a crazy clown You're the biggest thing in our town Come on, honey, it ain't fair Never getting anywhere I do, I melt you down When you're a gasser, that's a fact And I never can relax until I've made you Run away, I never made first base. Well, I guess that's a fact, and I never can relax until I've made you. And made you was a, a real, uh, it was a real rocky song. It was a little bit, I mean, when you consider that what came after What Do You Want was Lonely Pup in a Christmas Shop. Which, which seemed to me, even at that time, I'm sorry, everybody, but it seemed ridiculous. Mm. And I, uh, it's just, and it, that said, it was number one, so what the bloody hell do I know? 
so we uh, not, uh, a not so lonely pup then you know no <laughs> so anyway we we were going around the country and the next thing we know we're going around the world and i had never been out of the country and uh, well the next thing i know i'm getting a passport to go to new zealand now new zealand is a long way away and then it was even further so we were doing a tour of new zealand with a guy called John Layton, if you remember, Johnny, remember me. And so we were backing, backing him, we were backing Adam. And it, it was pretty much a variety bill going around the theatres of New Zealand. So at 17 years old, there I am in New Zealand. And this was just before Russell joined. So he, he probably couldn't have gone because he would have been, he's a year younger than me, he probably would have been too young to go. So we, uh, we found ourselves down under. And this was at the time of the the Bay of Pigs problem, which was when uh, uh, the, what was, what was going on? It was all to do with rockets and, and fighting, uh, was it the Cold War? Anyway, we found our way to um, down to the very bottom of New Zealand. And we were, we were thinking, well, if, 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 if this is all gonna go wrong and they're gonna start bombing Cuba or Cuba's gonna start bombing America, this is probably a, a, the best place to be. We're, we're far enough away from the action. So that was my first time on a plane. And I'll give you a bit of, uh, uh, a bit of uh, build this thing up. I was sitting reading my books. I read nine books on the way to New Zealand and back. And I was a pretty avid reader in those days. And a guy, the guy came out of the, um, the cockpit I think we were on a 707. No, I know we were on a 707. Guy came out of the cockpit with a stool, which he put in the middle of the, the, uh, the cabin, stood on with a sextant in his hand and pulled back the roof to look at the stars. And uh, it suddenly dawned on me, it didn't dawn on me then because I didn't know enough about it, but years later, it dawned on me, this is the only way we could know where the hell we were. Because, you know, we were flying across all these oceans. And it wasn't like they had um, GPS or any of that sort of thing. They didn't have anything. They just had this, this guy looking at the stars with his, with his sextant. So anyway, we, we did manage it. Went to Australia first, then found our way down to New Zealand. And then we came back through Hong Kong. So all of a sudden, from never having been anywhere, well, I've been to all these very, very different places. And then the whole thing took off and we started playing. I don't know if you know what ENSA is, but ENSA was what, how um, the troops of uh, Britain were, were, they were entertained. And we, and so they would get people like Adam Faith and they would get us to go and play in German camps or rather in camps in Germany. Better get that right. And we... Yes, probably should. Actually, um, Mr. Henry, we, we're going to take a, a brief stop break there uh, sorry it's mid-story but we, we, we want to hear the end of this of course and um, we'll be back with oh, you well, in, in, is... in one second on the voices of russ ballard what do you want if you don't want money what do you want if you don't want gold say what you want and i'll give it you darling wish you wanted my love Baby, what do you want if you don't want her? What do you want if you don't 
Say what you want and I'll give it to you, darling Wish you wanted my love, baby Well, I'm offering you this heart of mine But all you do is play it through What do you want, oh boy? You're making a fool of me One of these days when you need my kiss And one of these days when you want me to Don't turn around cause I'll be missing Then you want my love, baby Well, I'm offering you a diamond ring But all you do is turn me down What do you want, oh boy, you're going to down on me One of these days when you need my kiss And One of these days when you want me to Don't turn around cause I'll be missing Then you want my love, baby Oh well, then you want my love, baby Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Voices of Russ Ballard with, on this occasion, the voice of Mr. Bob Henrit or Robert Henrit. Bob, it's great to have you uh, along. And we very rudely interrupted you when you were telling us about flying over to New Zealand. Yes, um, we, we, we spent a lot of our time on aeroplanes, I have to say. And uh, it was okay for me because I liked them. But uh, Ray and Dave, which is, of course, another part of the story, were not great flyers, which was, if you're in the kinks, it's a, it's a bit of a... <clears throat> It's a sine qua non. You have to get on a plane uh, most days and, and go somewhere. But they weren't good flyers. But I, I loved it. I thought it was just exciting. Although that said, there were a few, uh, a few near moments. The more planes you go on, the more problems you could have with them. You know, and uh, and so we certainly did. Anyway, um, we we got up as far as entertaining the troops, and we would find our way to for example, to Singapore or Kuala Lumpur or Germany a lot we went to. And uh, we, we, we were in Germany and believe it or not, the, the guy who was in charge of us, who was a major and didn't know how to deal with us long haired jobs. Um, <laughs> he, he really didn't and he couldn't salute us because we weren't in uniform. So he didn't know how to do that. So there's a sort of a uh, there's some phrases they use, uh, everything all right, and then food all right? How are they looking after you? <laughs> and we had this guy, so he made the mistake of saying, say, what would you like to do? Um, you've got a day off today, and what would you like to do? So from nowhere or from somewhere, somebody said, let's drive a tank. Now, most of us, me and Russell didn't have, uh, we certainly didn't have driving licenses, <clears throat> and uh, didn't know one end of a tank from the other. Well, we probably would have done if it, if we've been facing it. So we are driving tanks. And the guy told us that one of the, one of the uh, uh, soldiers who was also looking after us said, uh, now listen, be careful with the clutch because it costs 35,000 quid if you break it. You know, if you burn out the clutch. <laughs> Guess what we did? We burnt out the clutch. So no, no, no. Never no. Had the, fortunately, but no doubt the bill is, uh, it, they'll find us one day. So that was very much what we did, and we we went, we found our way to uh, to Kuala Lumpur, and then we from Kuala Lumpur we went to Singapore, and we were staying in a hotel, and uh, there was this chap with a bald head, very athletic-looking chap, swimming up and down the pool, 
and this chap uh, was English and he had a he had a cabana or whatever they call them, a, a bungalow alongside the pool where mm -hmm. he lived. And it turned out that um, it was Noel Coward. So all of a sudden we're hobnobbing with Noel Coward. And he said, you must come to my place for Tiffin. Actually, I don't do the, the, the voice as well as Russell does. But anyway, we went to his place for Tiffin, sat on, on, his floor while, on his floor while he regaled us with stories of himself, which was great, that's what we wanted. Whereupon we were all jet lagged and fell asleep on the floor, which he held against us forever. And in his book, well, well if you, I, I can't really paraphrase it, but uh, he didn't like us falling asleep on on the floor. And uh, I was in <laughs> I was in Switzerland for for Zildjian actually, and uh, this guy took me to lunch, who happened to be um, the great man's biographer. And he said, was that you? I said, that was us. He said, he hated you. He really hated the roulettes. Oh, no. We were pallid. We were horrendously loud, horrifically something or other. And he said, horrendously loud was how he finished it. We always had a problem with, with loud because we were playing what was really polite music. You know, we weren't playing it. This was not rock and roll. This was, um, it, it was, it was, bordering on rock and roll, but it was, it had to be played properly and, uh, and didn't, and it, and it couldn't be too loud, not in the situation that we were playing in, which was variety. So as the drummer, I was always deemed to be too loud. And I can't tell we had a, we had a manager called Evie Taylor who looked after Adam. It was her fault that his second record was Lonely Pup in a Christmas shop. <laughs> anyway, um, we, we had this, uh, Oh, I'm not sure I should tell the story, but we were. You can't say that. You've definitely got to tell us now. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll get round to it eventually. But um, she would, after the show, she would take, uh, tell Adam aside and say something. Uh, there was there were other words in here, but she would growl the drummers too, something loud. And uh, of course, what we were striving for was rock and roll where the drummer is frequently too loud in my, in my defense. And uh, so, um, she hated that. And uh, we had, you, you mentioned, did we have a, a, ever have any hard times or a row with, with Adam? And we didn't really, but we did with, uh, with Evie Taylor. And uh, she wanted us to be something that we weren't. You know, we wanted to be, I mean, there, there was a real dichotomy because the whole thing was happening up in Liverpool and we, of course, were several years before the Beatles, uh, as far as um, being on the road and doing the sort of music we were doing. And so that's where we had arrived at. And uh, so it had to be, it was Mersey Beat. We were, I mean, as you can tell from listening to the, uh, to the records, we were, we were moving into a rock and roll direction. And she didn't understand it and didn't like it. And, but Tell did, Adam Faith did. So that was very much uh, a baptism of fire. If you should walk right out of the Each time 
started doing pantomimes can you imagine in those days um i don't know if you know this but um if a, if a theater doesn't have a pantomime it doesn't have a good year as in it won't make much money so these guys um the pantomime was essential and of course for the last few uh, or for the last year nobody's had a pantomime so everybody uh, in the theater in theater land is 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 broke because they're not making that money. So, but we were in, in 1962, um, there was no, you know, nobody knew about pandem pandemics or anything. And uh, we just got on with being emperor's guards and Chinese, um, uh, Chinese policemen in Aladdin and his wonderful lamp. And Tell was Aladdin and I, uh, I was absolutely hilarious. And we, I had to play in these, these shoes, which some were somebody's idea of what people wore in China. So they had pointy toes that stuck up. They were yellow boots with like sort of Wellingtons, short Wellingtons with toes that stuck up, which of course made it impossible to play the drums because they would get the, 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 the shoes would get caught up with the pedals. So <laughs> that, that, was, that was our introduction to, to, uh, to pantomime. It was our own, my, uh, my only, I think, the only time we ever did pantomime, but we did do summer seasons and the summer seasons were pretty much the same without the, without the boots with the, uh, the toes sticking up. Uh, so we, well, I mean, that was great fun and we just, just put a, a bunch of guys who want to be rock and rollers in in a summer season and, and see what happens, you know. And we we just had fun. Mm -hmm. uh, the, so the, you, you finally you finally changed your boots, then, and you, you made your way to to rock and roll. I yeah. found out something very interesting. Um, there is an unreleased drum album you recorded with Bobby Elliott. Yeah. I spoke how, how to came, him. How came this about? And, and when will we see the, the result? Of course, we want to. <laughs> we all want to know. We all want to know. Bobby has a book out. 
which uh, and I spoke to him re- two weeks ago, and we still talk. I mean, we're talking after fifty odd years, we're, nearly sixty years. We're still talking, and um, and Bobby turns out to be eighty next year. And of course, I'm just a kid. I'm not. I'm not even seventy-seven <laughs> yet. Uh, anyway, so we we got together a lot, and every now and again, Bobby would stay at my place, my my parents' place, and we 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 talked about. He he's got a book out, uh, which called it, it, it Ain't Heavy. It's my story, or I think that's what it's called. And I I wanted to write a review of it, so I. Bobby sent me one and uh, I learned things about Bobby that I thought, I mean, I didn't go, I, I was not forced to go down the coal mines, but Bobby did go down the coal mines and I never knew that about him. And had my parents not come to London, I would have gone down the coal mines. That's what happens. You know, the family came from a coal mining town. And so I'd have been there, you know, a few thousand feet underground getting coal out. So anyway, I, Bobby and I are still in touch and God knows how many years ago we decided, let's make a, nobody's made a drum record for years, let's have a go. So we went into the studio, we did, uh, one side was called Drum and Coke, which and that was a, a play on words on rum and Coke, not anything else, you know, as, as, as in Coca-Cola. I mean, we wouldn't have had any idea. This was 19, this was very early on. And, uh, so the A side was drum and coke, where, uh, God, I was nearly going to sing it then. Anyway, I think Russell played on it. Go ahead. And I, I think he did. Anyway, um, the B side was why won't they let us drummers sing? And um, so it was, it, it was a comedy record, you know, why won't they let us drummers sing? It seems to me it really is a waste. Why won't they let us drummers sing? Seems to me they've really got no taste. It seems a shame that we're all, seems a shame that we're all really stuck right at the back, singing singing stories to ourselves with voices that they lack. If they could only listen, they would say, we're all right, Jack. Oh, why won't they let us drummers sing? And it had had a comedy um, trumpet, and it was, (laughs) I mean, it's bizarre. And guess what? It didn't come out. <laughs> Hard to believe, but um, we want to hear it. We want to hear it. We want to hear well, it. I, Everybody's I, uh, listening to this saying, where is that? We want to hear it. Well, the only person who's got it is Bobby. And next time I talk to him, I have no idea where my copy went. I mean, it got as far as acetates and then it didn't get any further. Um, we didn't have the same A&R man you see what I mean? And we had uh, John Burgess and they had, the Hollies had Ron Richards. So anyway, it didn't come out, which is a great shame. And it'd be interesting to hear it. It would be. Um, I mean, anyway, to, try, to try and find it, we'd look through. We'd oh, look, you're not going to find we, it. We'd I mean, look through any window, wouldn't we, really? If... probably would i try not to yeah <laughs> these are the puns so anyway we we did make the record and we had a lot of fun doing it and uh, and we moved on 
And then Bobby, uh, I mean, they were, I, I've read Bobby's book, they were so bloody busy, it's ridiculous. I thought we were busy, but I mean, I think it looks that, like the Hollies were busier because they put, you know, each day there's another gig. Well, I never did all that. I just said, well, as you probably know, I, and then we went to, uh, and I would just say where we were going and what we did. So it's that stream of consciousness thing. So, um, so Bobby's book is out and it's a jolly good read. And I mean, he's had a checkered career and things in the book that I didn't know about. Um, but well, of course, a... everything has things that people don't know about. Well, there's another book that maybe all our listeners should uh, definitely um, make some time to read. So thank you for that. Well, Bobby, yeah, well. it's very yeah. Yeah. It's that's very good. Well written and he's captured the time rather well. And, you know, uh, that's really good. Well, we were going <clears> to, <throat> before we, before we move on from Adam Faith and, and to, to take a, a slight sort of almost a serious slant, we, we heard from Russ um, and it'll be probably under the Argent conversation that we have in a minute, but we heard from, from Russ in, in the last podcast, we heard his version of events when you or maybe others as well saved his life. Um, and what I'm keen to ask you about, because something that I discovered recently, thanks to you, is that Adam Faith um, maybe saved not only Russ's life, but, but, but some of the other guys as well. So, so I think I think this would be a lovely time to ask you about that story and 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 to yep. hear what really happened. Okay, we were funnily enough we were playing at Western Supermare uh, in uh, it's a theatre down by the sea. Well, mind you, aren't they all down by the sea? What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> it's the seaside. That's what they do. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, we were playing and it had a, a semicircular stage. And the the, uh, the curtains went round, and they were very flimsy curtains, I remember. And all of a sudden, and then I was counting in whatever the first roulette song was going to be. We always went on before Adam did. Adam was we, so we would warm up the audience, and then Adam would come on. He was standing at the side of the stage <coughs> at that time. So Thorpe and Mod walked forward, and Russell walked forward, and I counted the song in. But before I counted the song. Um, Everybody except Russell, for some reason, touched the microphones and their guitar at the same time, which is a real no-no. And uh, and the next thing I saw, and anybody, well, there was nobody behind me, was the Thorpian mod going up in the air, literally like that, like um, rockets, and then coming down in an arc and and simply sprawling on the floor. So Tell, who was standing on the side, knew exactly what to do. And he came over and kicked the soles of their feet. And evident that he and Thorpe had gone to uh, karate lessons. And it's one of the things, it, it seems, that they teach you in karate. So Tell knew about bashing or kicking the soles of the feet. And he managed to resuscitate them. So that was one. Oh, the other one was um, we were playing in, in Germany. We were at the Zoom Club in Frankfurt. And... <laughs> We started the show. I counted in my days and numbered, I think something like that. And all of a sudden, Russell was back in the drums with me. And I, th and I remember thinking, 
This is Argent, is it, Bob? As opposed to yeah. No, that's fine. That's fine. Just clarifying for the listeners. Obviously, I'm not aware of the story, but I just want to clarify. We'd love to hear. So, Russ. All of a sudden, Russ was back with me, and I'm thinking, what's going on? And there was a part of uh, of the Argent show where we would all be very close together and playing. You know, it was rock and roll, man. And uh, so I thought Russ was freaking out already. It's a bit early. It's the first song. And then I looked at him and he had, uh, you could see electricity going all around his body, around his head, around the guitar, and uh, even around the, the guitar tuners. There was, the, the, there was this blue, um, blue uh, sort of a blue flame, and it went all the way under the guitar and oh, down to the floor. So he, he had done the, the, what you're not supposed to do. He touched the, ampli- uh, sorry, he touched the, the microphone and his guitar at the same time created a, a circuit and that was that so he he fell on me and i immediately i had rubber boots on which um they were from miss selfridge if anybody's really interested they were girls boots. it's a fair cop but i looked well, i looked the business anyway um, <laughs> they, believe it or not they saved russell's life because i, I even though I, I put my instinctively put my hands on him so therefore i cut off half of the, or rather, we split the, the voltage that was going through him. And so it was going across both of us, both of our hearts, and I was able to move my feet. I don't think Russell could move anything. So I kicked the microphone stand and managed to bend the microphone stand enough for the lead that went up to the microphone to break and come out, whereupon the, the circuit was, uh, uh, was uncompleted or whatever the word is. Uh, was broken that's the word and uh, so the next thing we know the club is closed down russell is off to hospital in a in a white do you have white ambulances in are they white in germany anyway so yes, off- yes they yes they are yes they are white with the red cross on the sides right so anyway yeah. they they dragged him off uh he, he tells tells the story that he <laughs> they charged him I don't know if they charged him on the way in or on the way out, but they actually, <laughs> this is Germany. Of course, now we've, it was long before E111s, and of course we don't have E11s anymore, do we, Streety? Somebody no. has to pay the bill. Better get your, better get your money. Yeah, but yeah. they did, Russ. I think, well, what Russell said is he paid the bill, and then the people came to the Zoom club, and the Zoom club paid the bill. So he Russ tells the story of as he's being carried off the stage, he remembers hearing, I think he said a GI or something. Like, hey, you coming back on? Hey, you coming back on? There were lots of GIs. We, we specialized in GIs. And was, did he tell you the story of um, a guy, a GI wanted to sing a specific song and, uh, and we let him. He was really nagging. And there's this guy, we assumed if he wants to sing, he knows what he's doing. And um, he, we said, what are you going to sing? And he, he, there, there's a sort of a, a joke amongst musicians. There's a song called Wendy Night. And so uh, if you're going to play this song, you will say, Wendy Night. Well, it's, uh, it's actually Wendy Night has come and, and the land is dark. So th- this guy <laughs> came up and said, Russell said, so what key? And he said, oh, it doesn't matter. And Russell said, of course it matters. He said, no, I'll just sing it. So <laughs> do the same as the record. Well, the record's in a high key. So we start, dong, dong, ba-da-dum, 
bum, ba da dum, and he came, we did it! As, and we couldn't think how we could stop this, this train. The train was gathering speed and we couldn't stop it. And it, it, there is another story, but I, I can't give you that, but I will next, uh, when I see you. It's, it's, it, this one's not fair, but it is hilarious. And it creates, uh, it's, it's all about a guy who split his pants. That's, I'll say no more than that, well, if that means well, anything to you. It, it does, it does. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, to think that Adam Faith, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether that's, that's in his book, but I have read it, but I'm going to have another look whether that's in his book about saving the two or three of his, his musicians' lives on stage. But mm. it just shows you, apart from being a great actor, a great singer and a great guy, he was also an extremely bright spark as well. well, um, well there is, but, there is uh, a sort of corollary to that. Because of what happened, um, there, was a, there was a company in Newcastle which made circuit breakers. And nobody had thought about using a circuit breaker for a guitar before. Right. So we invested in one for each of the guys. And, uh, and so therefore we had, uh, you know, we felt that we were safe. And years after the event, we had them tested and they didn't work. No. <laughs> well, uh, we haven't talked about Unit 4, but do you want to talk no, about Unit 4? Well, I was, you know, no, you've, read, you've read my mind, Mr. Mr. Henry, because I, what I was going to say was we, we, we're, we're sort of... Um, creeping into argent territory which uh, in, okay. partic in particular i'm looking forward to however why don't we uh, cover on the way we ought to cover unit four plus two concrete okay. and clay and stuff like that so yeah we'd love to hear please okay well we i went to school with a bunch of folk singers and unit four plus two or unit four as they were were uh, a bunch of folk singers and they they were a vocal group. They weren't, it, rock and roll was the least, least of their worries. They weren't thinking about that. And um, so they made a record, which um, was rather good, but it was, it was very much a, a vocal group sort of song. And it wasn't a, a rock and roll vocal group. It wasn't do, do what, there wasn't any of that. And um, it was decided that they were gonna have another bash at making a record. And they asked me and Russell to come along and play on it. And so we turned up at uh, Nova Studios, which were, um, I guess they were Marble Arch. And we turned up and uh, did Cronky and Clay. And the, the guy who wrote it, who was Brian Parker, who'd been in the, in the, in the roulette for, for two weeks and couldn't stand the stress of being talked about every night. Sorry, Brian. But um, he couldn't, and he uh, eventually, he, put together a band and wrote Concrete and Clay. So while we're in the studio, he wanted it to be like the Drifters, uh, as in you to me, which um, it would have worked, but it wasn't rock and roll. So we, me and Russell grabbed it by the, uh, the scruff of the neck and played it like a rock and roll song. And I played something I'd never played in my life before, which was on it, and it was a bossa nova. And it was a very fast song, so it was pretty much too fast for a bossa nova. But I knew how to play a bossa nova, and it, 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 it sounded rather good. And the next thing we know, it sold two million. You to me are sweet as roses in the morning. And you to me are 
soft as summer rain and don't in love with shade. That's something rare. The sidewalks in the street, the concrete and the clay beneath my feet begins to crumble. But love will never die because we'll see the mountain stumble before we say goodbye. My love and I. Fifteen shillings and sixpence each, yeah. which would. But that, that said, that was the way it was. If you were doing sessions, that's what you did. And I think if somebody had said to me, "Would you, um, would you like to get paid for this, or would, or how would you like a piece of the action?" We'd have said, "Oh no, we'll just take the money." I know we would. We wouldn't. Have, we wouldn't because nobody knew whether anything was going to be a hit record, especially not selling two million. And so. We, we were unit four, or we were, by this time, we were the plus two, and, and we went on, and eventually, having been to Germany, uh, sorry, been to France for several months to play with a guy called Richard Anthony, we came back and joined, uh, we came back and, and joined unit four while we were waiting for Argent to get itself together. And that's about it, really. So Argent came along, and me and Russell, were playing with Unit 4, so the whole thing does dove, dovetail. We looked out into the audience and there was, or there were, Chris White and Rod Argent. We, and we were in somewhere in darkest uh, Essex, probably Basildon, it was Basildon, I think. Uh, <laughs> and we looked out and there they were. We thought, I wonder why they're here. Uh, so at the end they came up and they said, we're, we're getting a band together and we'd like you two to be in it. So we said, oh, great, thanks. Um, they said, why don't you come and listen to the songs? So we came, we went to listen to the songs at Chris's flat in Woodside Park, and we're in trance. They, these songs were fabulous. And of course, why wouldn't they be? Rod and Chris have been writing great songs forever. So the next thing we know, we're in Argent, and, uh, mm. and the, whole, uh, the whole express train is about to get going. And we then went to Germany, to get it together before we went to America. 
And we did the, the typical nine 45 minute spots a night, which I always say is a bit like working down the mines, only harder. And so we love it. And uh, I spoke to Cozy Powell about it because a lot of, uh, of us bands in the 60s did went to Germany to get it together. And you couldn't, you had to play nine 45 minute spots and more. You know, sometimes you had to play until the guys, until everybody had gone. And of course, we, we didn't know what, what, sorry, what German clubs were for. We assumed it was something to do with music. And then the penny dropped and we saw all these women along the bar, you know, women of negotiable affection, as they call them in America. And, and so we knew exactly what was going on. So, uh, which was good. We had somebody to play to then, you know, we, had, we could emote. So that was, that was the very beginning of Argent. And the next thing we know, we're on our way to America to tour. And, and the, that particular train, the Argent train, didn't stop until 1975, uh, maybe? 75 uh, until, uh, and by then Russell had left, so there was a, a change of direction. And uh, from there, we, I started playing with anybody. Well, I say anybody, that's stupid, but, you know, I was a, a gun for hire. So I played with Don McLean. I played with lots and lots of people. Well, we've, got, uh, we've, we've got lots to come to talk to you about on that, haven't we, Sven? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, know, I know. Let's jump back just a little bit to the Argentine. Uh, you... Finally, you sold more than two million records, um, so don't don't care care too much about Unit Four Plus Two. There's one Argent album. Well, I can say yeah, it's Ian and my favourite one, and uh, I think Ian loves the album more than I do. It's the In Deep album. Oh right, so Argent's Argent's In Deep, and there are so many stories about the the Argent. Uh, in deep album and i think it was well artwork wise a, a blueprint for a band in the 90s so ian uh do you want to ask the question you you yeah. always wanted to ask around the in deep album yeah i mean they, uh, listen i could i could speak for ages about the in deep album i could speak for ages about Archer because that's my first experience of seeing Mr. Henry on stage at Croydon Fairfield Hall in 1972. But anyway, um, wow. um, in, in, in Deep, um, uh, as Sven says, is our favourite album. And for me, it's only money, parts one and two. It's just, for, for me, it's it's better than God Gave Rock and Roll to You. It's better. It's it just, when when you started with that, when you did the reunion tour, the, the Goose Pimples had Goose Pimples. But anyway, that's the, don't, don't, don't get me started.
Um, I've actually got goose pimples as I'm talking to you. Um, I'll give but, you eight minutes. That, that's, but that's that's that, that's uh, be be sensible about it. Um, not many people realise, and I didn't know. I have to say, until recent years, that the album cover for mm-hmm. for Indie was a hypnosis album cover, which is Storm Ferguson and Aubrey Powell. For those that perhaps listening to this don't know, this famous company, and unfortunately Storm's no longer with us. He's gone, very, yeah. um, But uh, have, are probably, not probably, for me, the company responsible for probably the most famous covers in rock and roll, from Led Zeppelin to Pink Floyd's Dark Side. Pink Floyd, yeah. So, um, it's just... The list goes on and on. It's just phenomenal. Um, so let's talk about the, the cover that they did um, for for which was very off the wall for them to do one out uh, one Argent cover in, in the first instance, but also the cover photo was taken at an Olympic sized swimming pool, I think. And apparently, all four members jumped in for the shoot, but one couldn't swim. And I thought to myself, if that is true, I know someone who could tell the story better than anybody, and that's you. Mr. Oh, right. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, we all dived in. Actually, Rod wasn't a swimmer and, uh, and Russell wasn't a swimmer. I don't think, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. Um, uh, but so me and Jim, you, uh, swimming pools are longer than they're wide. So Jim and I dived in, did a, a width and the camera was uh, underneath one side of the uh, of the pool, it was a window. It was a sort of place where you would see, uh, uh, it, it, they would show what, what the stroke was and all that sort of thing. And you, this was another option for, for television. Anyway, so we dived in, got out, ran round, did it again, got out, run, ran round. So now in those days, we, were to, we weren't talking digitally, digital here. We were talking um, proper film of which there were 36 on a roll, I think. So me and Jim, me and little Jimmy, did 36 widths underwater. Now, of an Olympic swimming pool, this was, this was hell. This was, this was, we were knackered, absolutely zammed by the time we got out. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it, but it, hypnosis were jolly nice chaps, but um, I liked the, the, the Pink Floyd one where, there are two pictures ostensibly the same, but they're not. You know, that one where one's got a Fender in it and the other one's got a Gibson in it, but they're in the same position yeah. uh, in the picture. So they, did, they, they didn't do it just do in deep for us. They offered us um, a, an album cover, which they said was for us, bless them. And uh, it was an eye, an eye shut and, it, and on the eye was an eyeball painted. And uh, so we said, well, it's not really us, we don't think, guys. And they said, okay, no problem. And the next thing, Peter Gabriel had it. So there's a Peter Gabriel album cover where there is a, uh, an eye painted onto the, on, onto the, not onto the eyeball, but onto the eyelid, that's the word. And uh, so we, 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 we decided against that one. And it, I mean, that was another thing about being in a band is that you had to, work out what album cover you were going to have, you know, and, and you'd have to agonize about this. And uh, of course, all the good ones had been given to Pink Floyd. <laughs> well, the oh, the companies sell them. I mean, there's, there's websites where you can buy, you know, prints, high quality prints signed by, yeah. you know, Storm, etc. I've, I've got a dark side one, but 
But um, and I and I I met the guy that's taken over from Storm and actually said, "Have you got anything relating back to to In Deep? Have you got any of the originals?" And and he had a look around and he didn't, he couldn't find anything. So that's a real shame. But but there we are. But that's a yeah. great story. Just a, another quick argent, and some of these I've I've got from you. We we hear on the grapevine that the the multi talented Paul Carrick. squeeze and mike and the mechanics fame um ace as well you know how long has this been going on was asked to replace russ in argent when he left but then actually maybe the request was withdrawn when everybody realized he was in fact a keyboard player and not a guitarist is that's that- exactly it and uh, i mean we thought his voice was brilliant and and it was mm. uh, and still is what well, of course it is and uh, so we were we were casting around it's very interesting how who did sort of audition for for Argent and uh, and didn't get the gig uh, but um certainly Paul we we were astonished to find out <laughs> that he was a keyboard player I don't know why we didn't think he was a keyboard player it just seemed like he sounded like a guitarist and a, a singer you know the way the way he sort of sang but of course he wasn't so we didn't uh, he didn't get the gig yeah, but lots yeah. of other people didn't get the gig either. I'm not even sure I'm supposed to tell you, but uh, yeah, that's a bit unfair. But uh, certainly, uh, it was the beginning of Argent Mark II, mm. and uh, and we were off and running again. And then we did Circus. That's of course we did Circus, and Circus was a um, fantastic album. That is absolutely unbelievable. That album. It is. Yeah. That that, was- that first track with John Grimaldi. I always remember. When you used to come on stage, and it used to start with the, the light would go on Jim with the and then and then keep Rod's keyboard and then and then John Grimaldi hit the the night. It just went mental from there onwards with you coming in on the drums, and it's just mm. absolutely mad, fantastic. So let, let's let's talk a little bit more about the uh, Argent Mark II and uh, well, what became. Phoenix later on in a few minutes just a short break with uh, some some music from that era and we'll be back with the one and only Bob Henry in just a few minutes
Okay, we um, to the Voices of Russ Ballard podcast with Bob Hanred, or shall I say, welcome to the circus of the Voices of Russ Ballard podcast. Well, yeah, we were just talking about Argent, and Argent is so important to all of us. And uh, yeah, Bob, you told us a little bit about your time in, in Argent, we've spoken about the In Deep album and the artwork, which might be the, the blueprint for Nirvana's Never. Nirvana, yeah. yeah, that is a, a different story. And we were just talking about the Circus album. So when, when Russell left Argent, tell us a little bit about the, well, yeah, the, the last years of Argent. Yeah, we... Um... We regrouped, as you know, and John Grimaldi arrived and John Verity arrived, and uh, we just got on with it, really. I suppose that was what happened in those days. Uh, there was never any, any thought that, uh, that we would do anything else. We would just keep on doing the gigs and uh, find our way to America as many times as we could and find our way to Europe as many times as we could. Uh, but the, I think at the beginning of it, there was a thought that we might do the um, the circus gigs around the country but obviously that was I think we discovered that <laughs> that was going to be expensive it was going to be complicated and uh, did everybody want to see us in a circus but the one off which was at the roundhouse was a uh, was great fun and uh, I was there <laughs> I was there yeah yeah absolutely oh, fabulous yeah I was there too <laughs> Really? You could probably remember it better than me. Somebody, if somebody could just, because that was shot properly, JV told us that, you know, as far as he was concerned, even for those days, it was filmed properly. And yeah, therefore, somebody around there, um, and I know Good Earth took over the management, because I remember getting badges through the post. Um, the, some of the listeners might identify with that. God gave rock and roll to you badge or whatever. When you... And so I got three friends, a very naughty thing I did, actually, Bob. I said to friends at school, it was, there was two or three mates. I said, can you join this, this Argent fan club? Who are Argent? I said, don't worry, just join it. 
And you got a different free gift, you seem to be. So they gave me all their free gifts, so I had them all. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> been naughty, really. But thank you. Anyway, anyway but uh, the um, yeah, if anybody's got knows access to where that film is, or we could ever ever see it, I think it would just be phenomenal, wouldn't it? I thought JV knew where it was, or, or I, I seem to remember being shown a clip of it, or, or something of that nature. Hold your head up. Oh, you yeah. can see on, um, you can see on YouTube. So it's got the All where right. the guy is jumping around, and it's got JVC in the lead, obviously. Um, but that's the only clip that I, I'm aware is around. Yeah, we. Uh, it's interesting, really, because we never, we never thought about. I don't think we ever thought about longevity, but I do know that Pink Floyd do think about longevity. And certainly Nick Mason has got an assistant whose job is to catalog everything that happened. She's a very nice lady and her and she knows what she's doing because she's a, I was gonna say she's a cataloger, but she's an archivist. Is that the word, archivist? Yes. And yeah. uh, yeah. that's what she does. And uh, which, which saves it all getting lost, of course, because the further you, you get away from it, the, uh, it, you start looking at things through rose-tinted spectacles. And, uh, it, of course, it, it's being in a band is yin and yang. You know, some of it is good and some of it's bad, but all of it is being in a band, and we, we, would, uh, we would be finding our way around the world. There, there was a, a particular story where we, we were going to America, and John Verity, uh, we were all sitting on the plane, and John Verity decided he was going to get some... Uh, some sleep on the way. So he took some sleeping pills and uh, sat there until they came, they took over. And eventually it turns out there's something wrong with the plane. So uh, JV is, uh, is asleep, not only is he asleep, he's spark out. And the plane had a problem. So we all had to get off it while they mended it. And John V had to be carried off on a stretcher. And he woke up in the in the departure lounge where they took us and said, "Blimey, that was quick." He <laughs> <laughs> thought he was in New York. <laughs> so beware of taking sleeping pills. Well, you have to wait until the plane's taken off. Don't try to preempt it. So, so Bob, going going back before we leave Argent, just some, some quick questions for you. When I first saw Argent, um, in some of, particularly when you did like some of the polytechnics, etc., which my my father took me around to, um, a big part of the show was the Fakia. That's if I oh, yeah. pronounced it correctly, which was your showcase. And if anybody hasn't seen the clips on YouTube of this super athletic drummer with the biggest <laughs> drum kit you've ever seen absolutely knocking it out yeah it's just unbelievable so tell us a little bit about the fakir and, and how it came about it's a very unusual thing because you never recorded it uh, either so well, it's pretty it's on unusual the, on live album it, it's it on, on live album is it it's yeah, not on it's encore on, is it it's not on encore i think i always thought it was no you well I, I can uh, I'll be corrected, but uh, or stand corrected. But uh, there's a long yeah, percussion. We... There's a long percussion piece on "I Am the Dance of Ages," where where it features you on the gong and other things. Oh yes, and Rod on the keyboards. But uh, the fakir isn't. I would just well, it was it was a very interesting song because believe it or not, it's um it's not in four four. Cool. Why would it be in four four? God, we were progressive man, so it wasn't in four four. 
and it was quarter tone. A quarter tone is where is is in between the the cracks on a keyboard. That's quarter tone, and so it goes. So it sounds atonal, and uh, and that's what we wanted it to sound like. And the, there's a, a story about the fake ear about why we did it, and we did it because Jim, bless him, had a weak bladder. So halfway through the act, he simply needed to uh, leave the stage to, uh, to relieve himself. And uh, it was fine in Argent, because I could do a drum solo, but it never worked in the kinks. Nobody was going to wait while, while he went off for a wee in the kinks. As a matter of fact, they would, they would keep him there. <laughs> Poor old Jim. So he had a weak bladder, and uh, bless him. And that was where the fake ear came from. But I think we, we, it was somebody else had recorded it. Don Ellis, perhaps, in America. And uh, so we did it for years and years and years, simply so Jim could have a we. Can I say we? You can. You can indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, th I think it's on the, um, there is a, I've got a, I've just looked it up, by the way, the fact it is one, one of the live sort of BBC stroke. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah albums it's, no, it's actually not on encore but it is yes yeah, 13 minutes 47 seconds long i've just double checked it so everybody yeah. thinking so yeah well, it was it was great fun to play and of course it, that was in a, at a time uh, guys when everybody did a drum solo it was obligatory mm. and you didn't have to be any good you really you know everybody did it so oh here comes the here comes the drum solo let's get to the bar or let's go to the loo or whatever it is <laughs> so that, that came around at the same time as the quadraphonic PA. Now, we had a quadraphonic PA made by, uh, can't remember who it was, but they, they were in, they were just down the road from us lot. And so we had, we could send the sound around four speakers, back, front, side, and, uh, and that's what we did. And, uh, of course, I've never heard it. I have no idea what it sounded like. I was on the stage. I could just hear what was behind me. Couldn't hear anything else. Um, amazing. So it was amazing, I can tell you. Absolutely amazing. Was it? Okay. Well, it, uh, I think we paid 35,000 quid for it. It's so far ahead of its time. When you, when you think of 5.1 and the movies and things that were, that were to come in the future, you think, yeah. you know, you were doing that in the 70s, you know, when, when Russ was in the band as well. And, and you, you know, and doing a quadraphonic version of In Deep, actually, which yeah. there are some vinyl copies around and there was a CD, SACD released recently, which, um, you know, I've got a couple of copies of just in case one gets worn out. And, yeah. um, uh, and, and that, and it sounds fantastic. It sounds well, really RSD amazing. were the company that made it. And here, um, I'm not sure I should tell you this, but it was discovered if you put speakers front, back, left and right, and, and the same at the back and put them out of phase, you didn't actually, you would get the quadraphonic sound happening or rather the quadraphonic um, uh, sort of distance happening by putting them out of phase. So you didn't need to buy, you didn't need to buy what Sony was selling. Sony had a special little box that was all very clever, but you didn't need it. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. So I I, was it also true that one Argent gig in the US, there was a bomb scare halfway through? Oh yeah. Um, and when you came back, well, I'll let, I'll let you tell the story. Okay, well, the it's, we, we, were, we were playing at the famous Fillmore East in New York, first tour with the Moody Blues. And we just sort of just arrived there and we were starting out 
We did 51 planes in 50 days, which is too many. And the 51st plane brought us home. But anyway, we were playing in New York and halfway through our act, there was a bomb scare. So uh, uh, all sorts of sirens and things went off and we all found our way out of the theater standing in the street with the punters. And we're all having a nice time, we're all chatting and everything. And eventually they, uh, they checked the theater and there were no bombs. So we went back. Now 3000 people was, uh, had left the theater, but 5,000 people came back. Now the interesting thing about that is that this was before, this was actually before you there were any mobile phones. And uh, funnily enough, I was writing about it recently and the penny dropped that this might happen quite a bit at Fillmore East because where do you get 2,000 people from so quickly? You know, people who actually want to go. So I figured that it was a scam that was going on where it happened every every month or so and uh, there'd be a bomb scare and everybody would go out and uh, 2,000 people more would come back and it was the way to get get to the theatre. But just, I think the last question on, on Arjun, unless Sven's, and, and forgive me, I've, I've monopolised the Arjun questions, but Sven knows how dear it is to me. Um, Steve, I remember Steve Rodford of, of The Zombies um, telling me some time ago um, that he grew up seeing you with his dad on stage, literally grew up. I mean, you know, you think about the All Together Now album cover with a very young Steve Rodford on there. Um, and I remember seeing him helping out setting up your drums, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, at the Argent reunion gig at the High Voltage Festival. Oh, yes. Um, which I thought was fabulous and really sort of, you know, it brought the full circle together. Did, did you ever give him coaching when, when he was young? Did you, you know, was he no, interested I, in what you were doing? Well, it was, it, he would just be at the gigs and, or at the rehearsals and seeing what was going on. So it, it was more subliminal than that. It wasn't, this is how a paradiddle goes and this is where you play it. It wasn't that at all. Um, so he, he says that he, uh, he got it from me so that I'm very, uh, very pleased for that. And, uh, but I, it certainly wasn't, I didn't give any lessons to him. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've not really given lessons to anybody, including Josh, my son, who, um, who is a, a much better drummer than me. He's proper schooled, you know, and he's grade six uh, drums and everything. And uh, so he, he didn't get any lessons either. But what we did instead, we left all the gear around. So there were guitars, there were basses, there were key keyboards, there were drums, all just sort of everywhere in the house. And nobody was uh, persuaded or nobody was sort of coerced into learning an instrument, although everybody went to um, went to piano lessons. Uh, but they then after that, they were on their own. And, uh, and James, uh, the eldest son, plays uh, classical guitar. And uh, Lucy plays piano. And, uh, wow. and Joss wow. was not never burdened with uh, musical talent. So he became a, uh, a drummer. <laughs> and the gags continue. Really, the gags continue. Really drummer, yeah. But he's left-handed, so there's always that problem. We did we did something when the pandemic hit. We set up a drum, two drum kits in the garden, and uh, and we played. Um, we, we we started off with the hold your head up rhythm, so we're both thumping away at that. And then I would I would shout to him, uh, 
there are certain mnemonics uh, in drumming. One is the black cat whittles in the white cat's eye. And so we, I said, black cat whittles, and he went rump, bump, baba dee dee, bump, bump, bump. And then we both came in to, to play that. And then I would say flats in Dagenham, and he'd go flats in Dagenham, flats in, and, and then we bring it back to hold your head up. And then we had various other mnemonics that we use, shaga boom, shaga boom, boom, shaga boom, shaga. And so we, I would just shout these things out and we'd revert back to, and all of this, of course, was we were separated by the uh, amount of room that we needed to, you know, obviously, because it was the pandemic had just begun. And um, we'd like to do it again, but we just haven't got around to doing it. When perhaps when it gets uh, a little bit warmer, we'll have another bash at it. But um, it was a good thing to do. And it, it's, it's very, it, this comes from, if I haven't done any teaching of little kids of late, but then nobody has. And it's, it's an introduction to drums and it has one drum kit in the equation, but everybody else plays on the sort of tables that you get in, um, in art class, if you remember them, they're all covered in paint and they're, but we play on tables. So all of the rhythms are happening on the table rather than on the drum kit. And we march up and down and everybody has a jolly good time. And we, 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 uh, uh, we talk in, ter in terms of the most famous drum beat uh, and they all eventually realize that it is We Will Rock You. And then we'll go from there and uh, march up and down and chant and do all that sort of thing. And the black cat whittles in the white cat's eye. Fantastic. Well, uh, that's, I think, moving on from Argent. Otherwise, I'll, I'll probably still keep going for the next two hours. I'm going to hand over to Sven. We've got lots of, um, lots of stuff to, to continue with and lots of subject matter to think about. You know, the Phoenix, Genesis, Leo Sayer, Russ Ballard, Ringo Starr, right. Richard Daltrey, um, and all sorts. So, Sven, you lots of questions. I'll, I'll hand over to you. Thank you, Ian. Um, yeah, before we before we start with Phoenix and other recording sessions, Bob, some point in the 70s, you gave an interview, well, you gave tons of interviews, but in that particular interview, you, you said, you teased something on it, and you said you wanted to release a maxi single, a song you wrote together with Russell, kind of a funky thing. Do, do you remember this? And what happened to that idea? Because you and Russ, together as songwriters, um, you were pretty good because you wrote one of my favorite Adam Faith songs. Uh, everybody's talking about it. Think of Love. When the war began and man first met up with woman, let me tell you the first thing they talked about. They couldn't talk of love or the stars above Not until they got the language sorted out Everybody's talking about a thing called love Everybody's talking about a thing called love Everybody's talking about a thing called love Talk, talk, talk about it Everybody's talking about it I know the time and tide are set to wait for no man And I agree, of course, that this is true But the same busy pair will wait for a woman 
Especially when she's talking about the things of love to you Everybody's talking about a thing called Talks about the girl next door. Dear old Casanova, he had women by the score. Most of the films we see, people seem to fall in love. And most of the songs we hear about the moon and stars above. Everybody's talking about a thing called love. Everybody's talking about a thing. That's what I want to hear. Everybody's talking about a thing called love. Talk, talk, talk about it. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's talking about a thing called love. Everybody's talking about a thing called love. Let me hear it one more. Everybody's talking about a thing called love. Talk, talk, talk about it. Everybody's talking about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, you the songwriters, and what happened to the funky thing you wanted to release? Pop Henry single from mid of the 70s. Well, um, I have no idea, Sven. Um, there are, you, you probably don't know this, but underneath Haverstock Hill tube station is where everybody's masters are stored. And it's the, the, the underneath the tube station, it, it's a relic of, uh, of the war. And that's where the, where they were going to keep troops, uh, just in case anything happened. So it's it's a huge warren of um, uh, of rooms where they had bunks for soldiers and all that sort of thing. But they also stored everybody's um, masters. So underneath uh, Haverstock Hill tube station are everybody's masters, and including Argents, including the Beatles, including everybody really. And um, wow. It's air conditioned, it's everything that it needs to be. But what it isn't, everything is stored on tape. And tape, uh, the recording tape is an emulsion on top of a plastic tape, which falls off. So, <laughs> and, and uh, everybody thinks that their, their stuff is, is, being, um, is being taken care of, but it actually isn't. Because if you were to play it, the emulsion would fall off. So you have to bake it, then you have to play it once and go for it and save it to another format, whichever one you fancy that you think is going to be around longest, because everybody thought uh, recording tape was going to be around forever. And then it wasn't. So um, that's where it's all stored. So underneath there, there must be treasure trove from Argent and everybody else. But I wish I could tell you I had any idea about it. We used to go to, uh, we had a, a a friend who had a studio called Livingston, which was just down the road from me. And I went to school with this chap whose name was Nick Kinsey. And I also went to school with his sister, which was good. And uh, <laughs> we, we, we would turn up at Nick's to do, to do our, uh, 
demos. So a lot of Russell's songs were first of all demoed at Nick Kinsey's studio, which was called Livingston, and it was in Wood Green. First of all, it was in uh, Barnet, and then it moved to Wood Green. So lots and lots of stuff was put down there. And uh, I actually, I spoke to Cozy Powell, and he said, I love them. Um, I love Russell's demos, he said, because what you've played I, played, I don't actually really have to work too hard to think what to do. So I was very, uh, very pleased. And uh, Cozy and I got on very, very well. And Cozy, of course, had gone through the whole nine 45 minute spots a night thing in Germany, as indeed had um, David Essex. And uh, David Essex was a drummer. And uh, as had David, as had an awful lot of others. And uh, it was getting the band together in Germany. And it meant that um, if you could play nine 45 minute spots, you were very capable of doing a 12 hour session with the Kinks, if you see what I mean. And a lot of sessions did run for 12 hours uh, and, uh, and we survived. And so Cozy and I had a lot of conversations about that. Bless him. So yeah, I don't know where it is. Uh, and I must, what did you say it was called? Uh, oh, you didn't know. In the interview, you haven't said any name of the track. It was just, I think it was a, an interview you did in 1975. Um, oh, right, so the end was, of Arjun. Yeah, at the end, the end of Arjun. And um, yeah, that's where you said, okay, I, I, I wrote a song together with Russ. But may, maybe we will discover this one day. But at the end of Arjun, um, it was the birth of Phoenix. Yes. Another brilliant group. And yeah. really group recording Russ Ballard songs. I like to think we were the first um, first power trio, because being in a power trio is, yeah. is it's like being liberated. You know, you you bless Rod, but you know we were we were just going for it, and uh, it was all to do with empathy. And I would catch Jim's eye, and we would know where we were going, and uh, we'd look at uh, Johnny V, and it, we'd know where we'd know what we were doing, and it was it was a great time. And uh, we, had, we had a management, well, we went to America to, uh, to make an album, which was, and so we were playing in studios where we hadn't expected to ever be anywhere near. We, of course, we knew all about, we, we played at EMI a lot from 1962 onwards and various other studios, but we hadn't actually recorded anything in, in America except for Argent did something for Coca-Cola. Uh, and we, we recorded it in New York, and I, I'm guessing it came out. It was a, it, well, obviously it was a, it, it was meant to come out, and it, but uh, whether or not, how successful, I think it was Hold Your Head Up uh, with Coca-Cola connotations, perhaps. Coke, <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to think how you could fit Coca-Cola yeah, exactly. in. <laughs> I'm sure there is a way. I'm sure we would have thought of it. Hold your can up. Hold yeah. your can up. <laughs> Who knows? So that's a bit like Lola, really, isn't it? So uh, we, we put uh, Phoenix together. We had a bit of fun and we played in, oh gosh, we were in Sheffield and we were, we were just doing some gigs with Phoenix, the very, very first gigs. And of course, people came to see us to listen to Argent songs, but we didn't want to do Argent songs. We wanted to do Phoenix songs. 
So from the back of the audience in this particular gig in, uh, in Sheffield, which I think was the Black Swan, came a voice, play some that we know. And people wanted, they, we realized that they, you have to be very careful what you give them. And uh, you have to give the, as, as uh, the kinks would say, give the people what they want. Mm-hmm. And, and we weren't, but uh, it, was, it was a really good band. And we were, we were pushing the envelope as far as it could possibly go. More, I mean, Argent, of course, was very progressive, but um, Phoenix was much more rocky. And we were, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't that, that that first album was 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 a was really legendary and really well. And I think when JV was on the show, he 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 recounts that that time, Bob, as really mm-hmm. as you being extremely unlucky because you were um, the band was was competing with punk, and and yes. you, and, and you were probably the least um fashionable uh band at the time so the timing was all wrong on another occasion it could have gone you know the other yeah. way well we were indeed we were progressive and we you know everybody talks about prog rock i don't ever remember anybody saying it you know it's, it that's up there with the if you can remember the 60s you weren't there you know that sort of thing well it's not true I mean, it's it's just something that a uh, a writer to describe what was going on has uh, sort of used and uh, but prog rock was it was we were just seeing how far we could push one another and certainly hold your head up was was a uh, that sort of thing and uh, and there were we me and Russell were walking along the the beach in Saint-Tropez we went back to Saint-Tropez because we'd been there with the we'd spent a lot of time there with Richard Anthony and we were thinking about what we could do uh, how, what sort of songs we could do, and we we worked out that we could do a version of, gosh, yes, we're putting a, a we're doing America. If you remember, they, they came on and did America, da, 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 da. and we did. Oh, it was from Hair, uh, one of the songs from Hair. Yeah. It never stopped all the way through, you know. If it could, if it could have a nine-four bar in it, it did. And if it, could, <laughs> and if it could have a three-four bar in it, it did. And uh, and we went from there. Oh God, how come I can't remember it, Russell? Normally, I would ask Jim these things, uh, and uh, and Jim was Jim was a very good. Uh, Jim never ever agreed with me. I mean, we we had we did the uh, we did the roulette's first gig, and. Um, I came home and I was sitting uh, at the table, sort of getting over the, the, the emotion of it all. And I thought, I got myself, I got a, a calculator out to see if I could work out how many gigs I'd done in my life. And I stopped at 20,000. And uh, I thought, well, that would be a good place to stop, which is an awful lot of gigs. So mm-hmm. later, not that night, but later on, I phoned Jim and I said, Jim, I was just working out we did 20,000 gigs. He said, no, we didn't. And that was the end of the conversation. So, I mean, Jim would always correct me. And that's why it's very difficult for a whole band to write a book, because you're never going to get them to agree about the, 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 uh, the small facts about, um, about a story, you know, because everybody sees it in a slightly different way, very slightly, but often an important way. So Jim was my sounding board, and uh, unfortunately he's gone. So I, um, 
And now, now Thorpey's gone as well. It's, it's rather complicated. And Ian Gibbons is no... So these guys are not available for me to talk to anymore, which is, which is awful. I mean, we were... As you know, the roulettes were very close and Argent were very close. And, and that's how it gets in a band. And if you don't get very close, then you're probably in the wrong band. Mm. Just on that track you recorded, it wasn't Aquarius, was it? Um, did, didn't it Argent, was Aquarius, yeah. When the moon Argent, is in the second half. Yeah, just the Argent, Argent recorded it. And because and, I remember... I remember being at an Argent gig when someone was asking you to play it, and I was desperately trying to find the recording of it, but I, I, it wasn't commercially available. It I couldn't find very, it anywhere. It was very, very complicated, but it was great to play, and, uh, and we loved it. There's another story that I don't know if Russell told you. Um, we used to come on to Ravel's Bolero. Yeah. That was our intro music, which was quite long. So the intro music would start, and eventually we would get to the end and uh, it would be time for us to go on and I would whack the gong and we would get into go into whatever the first song was going to be and uh, I was uh, I'm not sure how, how I got into this but um, we, it always, we would always run out of time, right? There'll be something wrong, mostly with Rod's keyboards. And so we get to the 15 minutes of Ravel's Bolero and, and the music would stop and we weren't ready. Not ready! <laughs> so these are the things that, uh, that happen to rock and roll bands. They happen to us a lot. There's another story about Russell. We were playing in, uh, in Ohio and nobody had really scoped out the stage and it turned out that we'd, we'd done the sound check, but nobody had really been moving around on it. And it turned out that the, the, the stage had a, um, a step on it going towards the front and nobody, well, I certainly hadn't spotted it, but then I didn't need to, I was sitting down, but Russell hadn't spotted it. So this, he, he walked towards the front of the stage going down, ding, 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 dong, ding, 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 for that particular song and discovered the lip of the stage and stumbled down it and his guitar fell off and it went crang and uh, nobody knew what to do. There's another story where we were playing in, uh, in Toronto and it was, our, we, it was our first, I think it was the first gig of an American tour, which even though we were in Canada and uh, we... Rod's, Rod's organ. We talk. We took Rod's organ to to America. Now, Rod, it's a, it is a Hammond but it works on it works on different cycles per second. Uh, I think America is fifty cycles per second, and Britain is sixty, something like that. So Rod's organ wouldn't uh, wouldn't work, but it did for a few minutes or a few. So we started, and we did the first song, and then the organ started playing up, and it was the tuning went. So the best we could do was do a drum solo. So then they, the guys fixed it and we started off again. And lo and behold, it went wrong and we did a drum solo. So there's the second drum solo of the night. We're in this huge theater, uh, huge, uh, it was Varsity Stadium. So it was a, a football pitch. And we got going again and then it was time for the drum solo. So there were three drum solos. God knows what the audience felt. You know, three, I mean, one drum solo is, for some people is more than enough, <laughs> not three. <laughs> yeah. 
So we, we were often plagued by those sort of problems. Yeah, I, I, the first concert I ever went to with this, uh, at Croydon, the, the slow hand clap started because mm. the, the organ had, had, um, had blown up or something mm. and, and the slow hand clap. And, and it used to happen quite a lot with, with Argent. We touched upon punk rock a moment ago. And I know Sven wants to ask you about the Barnet Dogs in a second, which was Russ's answer to, to punk rock. To punk, but, before, yeah. but before we do that, um, uh, I don't know whether you can give us a Voices of Russ Ballard exclusive, but you, you made a little statement about um, when you were doing some recording sessions post-Phoenix, um, that you, you made some records with, shall we say, some anonymous punk bands. Um, <laughs> with um <laughs> because their drummers didn't have the patience to cut it in the studios which i think well, is a lot a lovely way of you saying because you're such a polite gentleman of uh, saying they probably didn't have the ability to do it in the studios although i'm not putting words in your mouth but i just wonder if you can name any names or you're allowed to name any names well, I, I, I spoke to rats i spoke to rat scabies about it and he um he told me the whole story about punk and I never knew. And it turns out that the reason they were called what they were called, like uh, Rat and all those names is so that they were all on the dole and they didn't want the people who gave out the money, doled out the money, if you like, to know that they were working. So they had all these Johnny Rotten, all those names were, were made up so that they, uh, they wouldn't get picked up and they could still get their dole. And, and it turns out, according to, uh, well, it's the truth, that without the doll, punk wouldn't have happened. But to get to the story, I, the drum store was probably half a dozen um, buildings on Wardour Street down from the Marquee. And the Marquee mm -hmm. studios were at the back of uh, Marquee. And they were, they were doing a lot of recording with punk bands. And uh, every now and again, a harassed... Uh, producer would rush into into drum store which was right next to the ship I should have told you that beforehand and and said oh, do you have any drummers here and we said well yeah we're we're a drum shop look it's called Henry's drum store oh yeah right um can anybody come and do a session I said we, we all can who is it what is it and they said it's a punk session so we would go we'd follow them as quickly as possible down the road start the session and, and it turns out that um it was part of the punk, the punk uh, sort of mentality, really. They they were difficult, or I think they tried. They made themselves difficult, and they they just couldn't. They didn't want to keep up. They wanted to get down the pub, and if they hadn't got, if they didn't get the first take right, they didn't want to do it anymore. Well, hang on, we played it once. I play. I'm getting down the pub. So they would they would go down the pub, leaving the the um, leaving the producer unaware what to do. So we would come along and. Uh, and play fast and loud and all that stuff for a few minutes and uh, and then we'd walk back to the drum shop so i have if you're going to ask the question who was it the answer to the question is i don't know um uh, most of it was just me and uh, somebody i i didn't know with a uh, with a mohican haircut and uh and exactly. well, interesting times well, listen, it's, it's, the, the, the stories continue. It's absolutely fascinating to, to talk to you, Bob. And uh, we're going to be back on the Voices of Russ Ballard podcast.
Well, that's the end of our part one, actually, of our conversation with none other than Mr. Bob Henry. We hope that you all enjoyed it as much as we did and, and had great fun. I've listened to it two or three times when we were putting this together, Sven, and I, I you know, this I was laughing at, I knew what was coming, but I was still laughing at some of the, um, some of the anecdotes there, weren't you? Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant conversation with um, with Bob, and Bob has so much to tell. Uh, and as we see, we're now over two hours. Uh, we, we need to stop here for the moment, but we, we will come back with the second part of our interview with the one and only Bob Hanred. Just quickly before we go, uh, anybody listening on to all those multi platforms? Oh, did I say we're on multi platforms, Sven? Oh, I think oh, I that sounds good. Yeah, multi platform. Anybody that's listening on Apple Music or, or is listening on any of the other formats, we would love to have a review from you on hopefully it's a good one, but you know. That's, yeah. that's up to you. But we'd love to hear more. We'd love to have your feedback. And don't forget to join the Facebook group of the Voices of Russ Ballard if you want to um, exchange views with like-minded people about this genre of music and obviously the great Mr. Ballard and, of course, Mr. Henrik himself. So until part two, when we return with Bob talking about the kinks and lots, lots more, I guess it's goodbye from me, Ian. And from me, Sven, thanks for your time. We'll be back soon. Hi, this is Russ Ballard, and you're listening to The Voices of Russ Ballard podcast.